If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. That's where we are starting here this morning, back into Ephesians uh, together, picking up there in verse 14, uh, continuing just to follow along with the saints who are in Ephesus. You know, we're reading the same letter they would have read. And so if you were willing and able, I'd ask you to stand with me now as we, as we look to God and His Word this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 3, starting there in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just, we just confessed uh, as we sang together, here is our heart, Lord. We, we come to you needy. We come to you tired. We come to you exhausted. Some of us come to you hurting. Some of us carried heavy things in here with us this morning. And we don't we don't need mere platitudes. We don't need empty encouragement. What we need is your word for us today. And so I pray that you would speak to us, speak what is true to us this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, a, a few years back, while our family was uh, supposed to be vacationing in Florida, our, our family found ourselves in what was a, a really unexpected uh, situation, but it was actually it was it was pretty cool. We were selected, um, yeah. So we were selected to participate. This is going to sound weird. We were selected to participate in a sort of exploratory program, and what they were doing is they're testing out the effectiveness of civilian militia in the event of an actual invasion, either terrestrial. Or otherwise, so this is like right about the time that the space force, and I, like, I know that sounds ridiculous, that's like a real thing. This is about the time that was becoming an actual thing, the space force was, was becoming a deal, and so um, we had to sign a bunch of waivers, right? It was nuts, it was, it was, it was really, I mean, it was crazy. Uh, we got selected, we went through three hours of training, all of us, even Logan, right, who was five years old at the time, they really wanted to get a sense of how this was going to work if, if an invasion happened. And they put us through a simulation with a big group of all these other families who'd been chosen to participate in this thing. Everybody's looking at Laurie for confirmation, right? There's like a lot of people going, is she, what? I'm, I'm, seriously, the statute of limitations has run out. We're allowed to talk about this now. And so um, I've been waiting. I've been waiting patiently to be able to share this story with y'all. It was great. What we discovered is that all of us would have died. Every single, 
every single one. None of us made it. It was a bad idea. So they kicked us out of the program and brought in a whole another group of recruits. Now, of course, none of this is true, right? I mean, I, I gave it away already. And you're like, you're not Space Force material. So whatever. Um, none of that was real. The selection process was simply us buying the tickets to enter into Animal Kingdom down at Disney World. The training was three hours of us. Yes, three, count them. It said 180 minutes on the sign as if that's supposed to make it sound better. Um, Three hours of standing in line. Uh, The simulation was jumping into this motorcycle-like looking thing that was supposed to simulate you flying around on this pterodactyl-like creature, you know, across the landscape of the fictional planet of Pandora. And uh, the debriefing at the end was us seeing how stupid our faces looked on the ridiculously overpriced picture they're trying to sell you, right? That's, that's, that was it from the Flight of the Avatar ride. Um, it was all fake. It was, all, it was fun. It was, it was great. Uh, Logan genuinely thought we were flying at one point. It blew his five-year-old mind. Um, but there was no mission, right? There was no risk. There was no real danger. This was before we worried about germs and COVID and stuff. So everybody just jumped in and put the headset from the first person. From the last person, you strapped it to your face four inches from your nose. You know, like, like that wasn't the riskiest thing in the world. And, uh, and minutes later, we were standing in yet another line. And here's the thing, right? At no point in that three hours worth of waiting in line. Now, I think it's safe to say at no point in that three hours did we stop and pray for how this was going to go. Like we didn't still, like, I mean, I would love to tell you, as the pastor's family, we sat there in the line at Disney World for three hours, and we you know what we did, man? We just opened our Bibles and read, and then we came before God and invited everybody in the line to join. No, we tolerated three hours because they make you think every room is the last room. It's not. There is no end to that line, never. <laughs> it never stops. But we didn't. We didn't stop and pray because there were no stakes. As we've been making our way through this letter, one of the things that is clearly being emphasized is that the believers in Ephesus have a mission. They have a mission. They have a purpose. In chapter 1, verse 11, we read that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now that's a purpose statement right there. We are to be for the praise of his glory. There in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, we read that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So not just modified, not just improved, not just renovated, but we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we could do this in dozens of places across the, the New Testament. We could do this in, in dozens of places across the Old Testament. And all of the scriptures, they point to this reality that if you are a Christian, like if, you, if you've taken the name of Christ upon yourself, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you have been given a mission. It's verse 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a simulation. It's not hovering blissfully over the fray of the earth, but it's a new creation life in the world, but not of the world. 
And if we can just be honest for a second, that's not an easy thing. Like that's not something for the faint of heart. It's, it's not all pretend. And so one of the things that John Piper has said, I, I've always loved this quote from him, it's from his book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, which is my favorite. If you want to know, nobody's ever asked me, what's your favorite John Piper book? But that's it, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he says this, he says, The reason the Father gives the disciples the instrument of prayer is because Jesus has given them a mission. And what we see in Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3, as he comes before the Lord on behalf of his brothers and sisters in faith, what we see here is the posture, we see the petition, and we see how these two things inevitably roll up into praise. It's a model for us. What we have before us here is a model for us. How how the disciples of Jesus Christ today, how those of us who claim to be Christians we see how we ought to be praying for one another. We see the posture, we see the petition, and we see the resulting praise of missional prayer. So look back there at verse 14 with me. Here's where we see the posture of missional prayer. He's picking up where he left off back in verse 1 of this chapter. You remember that? He started a prayer like so many of us. He got distracted. I would argue his distractions better than my ordinary distractions, but he got distracted. And here's where he said, He said in verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus is himself on behalf of you Gentiles. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now now stop there for just a second. We started the prayer in verse 1. We're picking up here in verse 14. He's bowing his knees. We need to stop here because this is where missional prayer begins. And it's not some like, it's not... It doesn't begin here in like the formulaic sense of like this is the mechanics of, of prayer. It's not that the physical bending of the knee is a, is a key or, a, or a, a hidden secret to effective prayer. Sometimes I think we, we want that, right? We want to know what it takes to make it work. We want the formula. We want the guarantee. Just, just give me the five steps to follow for a better tomorrow. But, but Paul, isn't, he, he's not particularly concerned about that. Because he knows, well, here's what he knows. Paul knows that he already has access to the Father. You remember back in verse 12 from a couple weeks ago, as he broke from the prayer into this sort of rabbit trail of the gospel, he, he made the statement that in Christ, here's what he said, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. One more time, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. He's letting us know that in Jesus we have the key, right? Like in Jesus, we have the access. In Christ, the doorway to the Father is always open. Remember, God never, God the Father never dodges our calls, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do what we do. And listen, this this really is critical to understanding like the nature of redemption. It's not just that we're saved. It's not just that we're saved from the condemnation of our sin, as, as miraculous as that is, right? We remember back in 1-7 that in Him we have redemption through His blood, right? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That's the good news. That is the gospel summary right there, that in Christ Jesus we are set free from our sin. And, and in that, there is this turning from sin. There, there is that. And, and most of us seem to under understand that. It's what we call repentance. But that turning from sin is not just a stop. 
Like it's not just a stop in the road. It's not just a pause in the trail of life. It's a turning from and simultaneously a turning to. Right? Okay, in Christ, by grace, through faith, we turn from sin and we turn to holiness. We turn from unrighteousness and turn to righteousness. We turn from ourselves and we turn to the Father with with what Paul calls boldness and access with confidence. And confidence, listen, confidence is not arrogance. Arrogance is coming to the Father. Here's what arrogance would be. Arrogance would be coming to the Father as if He owes us something. That's what arrogance is. That's not boldness. That's not confidence. That's arrogance, right? Arrogance is the younger son in in Luke 15 who, who comes to the father and says, give me the share of property that is coming to me. That's, that's arrogance. That says, I don't care about you. I just want your stuff. I want what I deserve. I want what's coming to me. But that's not the posture here that, that, Paul's, that Paul's suggesting. But, that, but what he's saying is we come with boldness and confidence, but what we come with bended knees, so it's this sort of humble confidence. This is true for all of us, right? Because we all have the same access. Every one of us in Christ has the same access. There's no, there is no three-hour line to get to the Father. Okay? There's no, there's no long walk. There's no hill to climb. There's nobody standing in the way. You don't even need the fast pass to get to him. But I would suggest if you go there, get the fast pass. Because three hours in line is ridiculous. Um, we can't get that time back. Okay? What it means that we have boldness and access with confidence is that even right now, God is here and he is present with us. We don't have to go looking for him. There's not a search. There's not a hill to climb to find enlightenment. It's that He has come and dwelt among us. I wonder if you consider that in your daily life. That's the question I've wrestled with this week. Do you consider that the Father of all creation, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, do you consider that He's present with you? Like as you're driving, as you're working, as you're eating, as you're changing a diaper, as you're cheering on your kid at the soccer field or baseball field or whatever it is they're doing, as you're walking to class, try not to trip on the bricks on campus, as you're standing at a tailgate, as you're hoping against hope that your kicker is going to make this extra point so you don't lose to Vanderbilt, whatever it may be, like even as you're singing in church that God the Father is present here right now by His Spirit. That He's here with us. Like right now. That we are in His presence. Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This is a reminder for us that it matters what we do with our bodies. I've told this story before, but when... This was years ago. It was before I was working in the church. I was upstairs, and I, I don't remember what passage it was, and I don't remember what came over me, but I, I decided that I needed to actually kneel down uh, in the room where I was. I was upstairs by myself, and I just got on the floor and started praying, like head to the ground, praying, and, uh, and every, everything was going well. I'd never really done that before, so it was going well as far as I knew. I didn't, you know. 
And uh, I heard footsteps behind me. And I'm like, nope, I'm going to power through. Just going to ignore that. And, uh, and Laurie walks in and just goes, are you okay? <laughs> like, do you need me to get somebody? Is this, like, I think she thought I was hurt. Or something like that. It's because it's so rare that the people of God actually get on their knees and pray that my wife, her, her, it was like Jesus, when he was resurrected, and the disciples' natural assumption wasn't that he was resurrected. They were like, maybe it's a ghost. Like she, her natural assumption wasn't that I was praying. It's that like, oh, he's got an injury. He's down. We better get some help. And should I call the doctor? It reminds us that, that God cares about what we do with our bodies. It used to be in the old churches, you'd have the kneeling bench. Do you remember this? Have you ever been in like the old church? You could roll it forward and you would kneel. Now, I, we haven't even looked into what it would take to do that with our chairs, but there is the sense of like, would we even humble ourselves to the point of falling on our knees and praying? Now, again, this isn't a formula. All right, There's not like, oh, well, I was on my knees when I prayed that, so God's definitely going to hear. That's not how this works. We're talking about a bending of the knees even in our hearts. Are we humble enough to come before God in true need and perhaps be found looking silly on the floor because of it? It reminds us, when we see Paul bending the knee, it reminds us that we are not our own. It's 1 Corinthians 6, right? That, that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so we come to the Father with confidence, and we come to the Father with humility. We come to Him with, with the bent knees of a humble and contrite heart, knowing that He is the vine, that we are the branches, and apart from Him we can do nothing. So I want to contend with you that that is the missional posture of prayer. It's a posture of humble confidence. Now look back at verse 16. We see the posture there at the beginning. But in verse 16, we see an actual petition, the the petition of missional prayer. Look at that. Here's the petition. It says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So so in here there are several petitions kind of packed into one. It's obviously more than one thing there. And this is Paul's prayer for the church. All of these are, it should be noted, all of these are plural Prayer. So when you see these, these verbs in there, they're all plural. They're, all, they're not meant for individuals. They're meant for all the individuals. They're corporate prayers for the church. And the first is that we would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. All right, we need to remember this, and it's always important to remember our context, but we need to remember that the Ephesian believers, they were living in an environment that was overtly and openly hostile to the Christian faith. Like it wasn't a good move socially in Ephesus to become a Christian. That was not the path to to greater opportunity. It was not the path to more friends and, 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 and influencing people. It was the pathway towards relegation. It was the it was the downward path of social trajectory. And so not unlike the culture around us today, and yeah, we're, we're getting closer and closer to Ephesus every day. 
the faith of the Christian church was absolutely under attack. And so Paul, right, knowing this, having been a part of both the attack and now being the victim of the attack, he recognizes that the world has always been sort of diametrically opposed to the things of God and, and even finds himself in prison as he's writing this because of his proclamation of the faith. Notice that in that moment, though, he doesn't pray for his own liberty. He also doesn't use this opportunity to go, listen, I know you got a church there and you can all read this letter. Here's what, could y'all just pray for one of those, if we get maybe another one of those Acts 16 earthquakes, you know, like happened in Philippi? God could do that. He's lived through that. God, you know, so Ephesian church, could you pray that maybe God would shake the foundations of this prison, maybe break the chains that are holding me in place? He doesn't pray that. He doesn't pray for one of those, but he prays for strength. For who? For the Ephesians. He prays that they would be strengthened with power. So not only is there a humility in coming before the Lord and prayer and bending knees in prayer, but there's a humility in not making himself the focus of the prayer. Oh, man, this isn't... Maybe this is more convicting to me because I'm just a naturally more selfish person than you. But the fact that Paul in prison is praying for his brothers and sisters in faith who are not in prison and is praying for strength for them instead of for himself has, has really wrecked my heart a lot this week. It's made me think of, it's made, I'll tell you, here's what it made me think of. It's made me think of our college students who are down on campus right now, or actually you're here right now, but who will be down on campus at some point later today, and you're in an environment that is not warm to you as a Christian. It makes me think of our teachers who are trying to struggle through new curriculum and, and being taught new social norms, that they're having to navigate that and being told that their faith has no place in it. It makes me think of the people in work who are afraid that they might be found out, that tomorrow somebody's going to ask you, what would you do this weekend? And you'll complain more about the football game than tell them of the glories of worship with God's people. Not because you didn't enjoy worship, but because you're afraid that that's what they'll think of you. I'm afraid for me, I feel sorry for me, that I will, in the midst of pastoral work, begin to think that I have my that I have my act together more than you do. And so I'll just focus on how hard it is to be a pastor. Y'all, forgive me for that. That is foolishness. Every single one of us, every single one of us is fighting a hard, hidden battle every single day. And a big piece of that is just to live out this faith that we've claimed. I love the fact that Paul, in this moment, doesn't pray for himself. He prays for others. He prays that they be strengthened with power. That word for power there is the same word that uh, Jesus uses in Acts 1. And so this is supernatural power. He's not praying that you'd have a better workout regimen. He's not praying that you get on a better diet, even though those are good things. He's praying that the Holy Spirit himself would come and dwell in you and that you'd have power through his spirit. Now, our natural tendency is to focus on the external, right? Despite what our teachers told us when we were little, little kids, we still have a gift and love to judge a book by its cover. But what we know is that God is more concerned with what's happening on the inside. He's always more concerned about what's happening on the inside. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that though our outer self is wasting away, right? So Paul knows that the outer self is wasting away. Here's the bad news. You're going to die, all right? 
I had more to say about that, but I don't want to just belabor that point. At the end of the day, if we all live long enough, our bodies are going to become ridiculously vulnerable and we will cease to be alive physically. That day is going to come. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is the supernatural power of God that even though everything looks like it's falling apart, the most important thing is being held together. This is what God does for us in Christ. That by His Spirit, that, that, right, that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, not in your strength. My power is not made perfect in your ability. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so we heard last week in Matthew 11 that Jesus comes to those who labor and are heavy laden. Those aren't positive attributes anywhere in the world outside of the church. To confess that you labor and are heavy laden, that I'm tired, that I'm weary. See, Jesus comes for those in need of rest. He comes for the weak. He comes for the tired. He comes for the depressed. He comes for the anxious. He comes for the fearful. And the first part of Paul's grand petition for us is that God would grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And why? Look at verse 17. Look at 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, now here's the thing. If you have confessed that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you have been saved and Jesus does dwell in you. We used to be dead, now we're alive in Christ. And Paul, what he's doing here is he's taking, deep, he's taking us deeper into this life. The, the theologian Charles Hodge describes the indwelling of Christ as being a thing of degrees. And Paul is going deeper here. He's taking us into deeper degrees of Christ dwelling in us. The word for dwell means to settle down and to set up a permanent abode. So it's more than just to inhabit. All right, to dwell is more than just to inhabit, right? It's, it's more than just to be present. When we go to the beach or we go to the mountains, it, we, we, we typically stay in a house, but we would never call it home. We would never say we dwell there. The idea of dwelling is to make a home, not just with us and not just near us, but in this case, in us. It's for you to be a home, just like when we move into an apartment or house or wherever we call home, but, but it happens in degrees, right? So when we moved into our house, we, we chose the paint colors and we painted it and we hung pictures on the wall and, and we, we set up the furniture. Laurie tried every scent of candle imaginable when we moved into our house. I don't like any of them. We tried them all. Tried them all. It was, it was a rough it was a rough season. We, we, we did all this. We picked it all out. We, we, not only we pick out the paint colors, we picked out where the furniture would go in each room and what each room would be used for. Like this is going to be this child's room and this is going to be, the kitchen was kind of established since it had all the cooking stuff, but that's going to be the kitchen. Like we're going to use that and we knew that's going to be a place where we're going to gather and we're going to fellowship and that's how it's going to be in our home. And in time, that's what it became. It became a home and it's the same with Christ. The longer he dwells in it, here's what happens. You know, the longer we dwell in our home, the more it begins to reflect what? Us. It reflects our preferences. It reflects our uses. It reflects our priorities. The longer he dwells in us, the more we begin to take on his character. That's what Paul is after here. It's that we would be rooted and grounded in love. That's what Jesus does in us. Like a little leaven in the flour. Remember that illustration? Like a little leaven in the flour. He pours through us in sacrificial love until the whole lump 
is full of leaven. And we don't see this happen in a vacuum. We also, we don't see this happen in a mirror. We see it most clearly in one another. I love this quote from Ian Hamilton. It's in your worship guide under the questions for community groups. I hope you'll think about this together. He says this, he says, the principal evidence that Christ truly is dwelling in our hearts by his spirit is the presence and overflow of love in our lives, first to God and then to his people. Jesus said that they would know we are his disciples by our love for one another. Paul's prayer, his petition here is that we would know that we would know this in our church today. I do you want to know what we are about? It's it's very simple. Rivercrest as a church is for the love of God and the love of one another and it's for love of neighbors. We could com- combine that into others, but and all that's for the glory of our Savior. It's a really simple plan. Love our Lord, love one another, love our neighbors for the glory of the one who saved us. And that flows into the deeper petition. Look at 18. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. What's he talking about right there? He's talking about the love of Christ. The breadth and length and height and depth. Is there a more mysterious thing in the world than love in general? And here we have the love of Christ. And how are we to know it? How are we to comprehend it? Look back at 18 again. We comprehend it with all the saints. How many of them? All of them. What about the obnoxious one? Yeah, that one too. And if you're like, I don't know an obnoxious one. It's like... Listen, at a fundamental level, the life of a Christian, like the life of faith, this thing that we talk about all the time, it is a shared life. It's a shared life and it's a shared mission. I read this week that with all the saints, that line right there, with all the saints, is the default of the life of faith. There's no lone ranger faith in Christ. By the way, that's the worst named TV show ever because he wasn't even alone. Like ever. He had a teammate the entire time and an awesome horse, okay? Even the Lone Ranger himself wasn't alone because we were, here's why, because we were never designed for isolation. You know how boring that show would be if he was alone? Like just sitting there? Then he took a nap. No, there's no such thing as an enjoyable life alone. We weren't made for that. You weren't designed for that. So if you find, here's what I would say. If you find yourself drifting in your faith, one reason may be that you have drifted away from God's people. Maybe it's a stubborn refusal, right? Maybe it's just regular old indifference. But for some reason, maybe it's fear, shame, doubt, for some reason, you've hesitated to commit yourself to the king and his kingdom. And his kingdom is the saints in Christ Jesus. It's us. So I apologize on behalf of us. We're not that great. But in Christ, we are his. The call here in this prayer is for unity, not just in life, but in the mission. It's that together we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the 
fullness of God. Listen, God wants all of you. Every single speck. Not just the pretty stuff. Don't believe that. The church has got to learn to reject the lie that God is only interested in your best. No, that's not true. He is a good father. He wants the junk. He wants the mess. He wants the scars. He wants the sorrows. That's the point of the gospel. It's not that Jesus came to pat us on the back and, and tell us how awesome we are, but He came and took the sin off our backs and put it on His own. That's what David's saying in Psalm 30. He's saying this. He said, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. That was the clothing of suffering. It was the clothing of sadness. It was the that you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You see, even in our confessing our need for the Lord, even, even as we pour out the petition before the Lord for strength, we get a glimpse of the power of God. Just look how Paul ends here. Look at verse 20. It's pure doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. But I'm tired. He's not. But I'm scared. He's brave. But I'm weak. He's strong. But I can't do it. You're right. You're right, you can't. And that's a good thing. Because He is able. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. This is why missional prayer always results in prayer. Sorry, praise. This is why missional prayer always results in praise. It's because the more we see what the Lord is doing, the, less we, or the more we know how incapable we are of doing it. It pushes us back to Him. Because he is able to do far more abundantly according to the power at work. Where is that power at work? What does it say? What does the word of God say there in verse 20? Where is the power at work? It's within us. It's his power at work within us. Listen, the church exists for the glory of God in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That is the calling for you. That is the mission that you've been brought into. That's the life, and it's not a simulation. It's not. And what Paul wants us to know, what the Bible is trying, is shouting to us, is that we're meant to be in this together. I love the church. I mean, let me just say that. Um, not because it's easy to love. And I say that knowing that I'm part of the church. And I'm not easy to love at times. The most heartbreaking thing that I've seen in the last 18 months. And maybe it's just because we've been paying closer attention. Maybe it's exposed things that were there. I don't know. The, the, the hardest thing for me to watch and to be a part of, has been foolish divisions usually centered around human pride. As people not being, by the way, I'm not trying to make eye contact with anybody here. This is not like calling you out moment. Like, I'll just look straight ahead. So Tim, it's your fault. Um, <laughs> there's nowhere to look. 
One of, the, one of the hardest things is watching division happen, usually centered on human pride um, and, a, and a refusal that usually springs from a refusal to bend the knee in prayer before the Lord. One of the most powerful things that I see in this passage is that Paul is willing for us to see his vulnerability. That a man who had an encounter with the risen Christ, who literally showed up on the street and blinded him, is willing to say, I can only pray for you in this moment. He didn't say, here's the plan of attack. He didn't say, follow me and we'll make this happen. He said, the most important thing I can do for you right now is pray for you. And look at him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. If you're going to pray for me, so selfish time, regardless of your age, regardless of your stage of life, if you would pray for me, pray that on a daily basis. If you're going to pray for the people in your community group, begin right here. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. If you're going to pray for the elders and deacons of your church, pray this right here. Bow the knees before the Father and plead that they would operate, that they would move forward in humble confidence, that they would know that their Father in heaven is willing to hear them in their absolute lowest moments. If you're going to pray for your parents, if you're going to pray for your brothers and sisters, begin here. That's the calling for us. We don't have to be creative today. I don't know what to pray. Yeah, you do. I'm not good at it. Just read it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would plead on your behalf that you would show us again your power, that you would show us your glory, that you would draw us closer and closer to yourself and closer and closer to one another. Help us not to wait. Help us not to delay, thinking that there will be a time and a season for that. Lord, I pray that you would draw us ever nearer. That you would bind us together in this life and faith. That you would use the people in your church to encourage to push forward, to walk with the people in your church. And I pray that you would get the glory because you can use even people like us <laughs> with all of our weakness, with all of our fear, all of our doubt, all of our anxiety, all of that. You can use all of us to accomplish your grand, glorious purposes. That's what we're here for. Let the world see us in our weakness so they might see you and your power. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.